we cannot have white Christian nationalism and have democracy. It's the, the two are not things that can coexist. Now, does that mean we can't have Christianity and democracy? By no means. There are many Christians, and we say this all the time in writing and on, on, on our podcast, there are many Christians who recognize that Christian privilege is not part of democracy and they don't want Christian privilege. They're happy to exist in a society where all people, religious or not, regardless of ethnic or racial identity, regardless of gender or sexual identity, are welcomed, included, and everyone is playing in the same uh, level playing field. Christian nationalism, by its very definition, tells you from the start, I don't want that. And so how can we have anything like the democracy we want, a more perfect union, if one group shows up to the table and their first opening statement is not, hi, I'm so-and-so from this part of the country, but hi, I'm so-and-so, and I clearly should be privileged at this table above everyone else, so I'm not going to participate unless you all agree on that. Hi, I'm Chloe Gio, and you're listening to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground, a podcast about white Christian supremacy and being queer on the most conservative campuses in the country. Think of me as your guide and translator as we explore the carefully constructed subculture of religious education. Joining me are co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick, our resident legal expert and historian, and Aaron Green, our biblical scholar. What you will find here is a roadmap to change from the underbelly of the church's best kept secrets. Today's guest is Brad Onishi. We're really excited to have Brad on the show. Um, Brad is a social commentator, a scholar, writer, teacher, especially in the areas of Christian nationalism, the history of evangelicalism, race and racism in American religion. Brad is the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, and he's also the author of the new book, Preparing for War. The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism in What Comes Next, which is just out this year and which I have thoroughly, thoroughly highlighted and underlined. After growing up in a non-religious home in Southern California, Brad converted to evangelicalism at a mega church in his hometown at the age of 14. He later became a youth pastor and after serving seven years in ministry, decided to pursue a master's in theology at Oxford. Soon after arriving in Oxford, Brad deconstructed his faith and began to study religion, historically and philosophically. True to his California roots, Brad is also an avid surfer, which is cool. Brad, welcome to On God's Campus. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Surf's up, Brad. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that you were a surfer. I think that's so cool. It's uh, at this point, you know, in middle age, it's um, I mean, some call it surfing. I don't know what it is anymore. It's just me <laughs> okay. trying to yeah, trying to stay healthy. A little more so. dangerous these days. You got to watch out for those bones and muscles. Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't mind seeing a video on this on the interwebs if it happens to be there. Um, we'll look for it. We'll look for it. But let's let's get right into it, Brad. I have a question, you know. Going through your background, which I find to be very interesting to me, um, and I know that you and I have quite a few things in common, but I want to know about when you were younger and you decided to convert to evangelicalism, what on earth were you thinking? What happened? Yeah, so I was 
a really angsty kid. Um, I, you know, was one of those kids who did well in school. If you, if you looked from the outside, I don't think you would have thought of me as somebody who had a lot of interior, uh, dark night of the soul happening, but, um, I did. And so I spent a lot of nights, you know, laying face up in the driveway, you know, trying to get away from parents when I was at 13 years old, 14 years old, wondering about the meaning of life and what happens when you die and why are we here? And I'm just going to grow up and get a job and do what everyone else does. Uh, what's the point? So there was just a lot of, a lot of like, what is the meaning of life thought for me, uh, in ways that probably foreshadowed becoming a professor and, you know, just being somebody who thinks about these things all the time. And I got invited to church by a, a girlfriend in eighth grade. And I just thought this is perfect. I can go to church. Uh, we'll sneak out of the Wednesday night Bible study. We'll make out. It'll be awesome. Mom can't say no. <laughs> oh, you thought wrong, Brad. <laughs> and I then like get there. And I, at this point I'm 14. I am fully in the grunge era. This is the nineties. I, have like pink and yellow hair. I have, you know, all of the trappings of like grunge uh, dress going on. And I, I think that these Christians are going to be like, get this rebel out of here. <laughs> and um, instead they, you know, the, the leaders of this youth group at Omega Church were, as you would imagine, they were 20 somethings, they had tattoos, they had guitars, and they just thought, hey, come on in, pal. And I thought, whoa, I uh, didn't expect that. So it was a cool church, one of the cool churches. Yeah, in some sense, at least the youth group was. And they, you know, welcomed me with open arms. I got girlfriend dumped me very soon, but I, I made church my second home and converted in a way that was extreme. I mean, I went from that kid at school that was getting in trouble and hanging out with folks that mom and dad were worried about and all that kind of uh, business to, uh, you, you know, standing outside of the movie theater asking kids my age if they knew Jesus, uh, starting a Bible study at high school when I started the next year. Uh, everything I, you know, when my mom asked me what I wanted for Christmas that year, um, I said I wanted a Bible. And then the next year I asked her to send tracts and Bibles to Nepal so that people who had never heard of Jesus could be saved. So wow, um, Brad. it was not, uh, yeah, church is kind of cool and I like it here. They have a swim party every once in a while. Let's do it. It was like what church provided for me was an answer to every existential question about the meaning of life I ever had as mm -hmm. well as with a built-in community that became my second home. Right. So, okay, so then fast forward to when you were at Oxford and you decide to deconstruct your faith and beliefs. Um, I want to know about that moment or series of moments or whatever that you had that made you decide to pivot into exploring that. But also, because I didn't know this about your background, um, and conversion to evangelicalism, what kind of emotional toll did that have on you to to go to the opposite end of that later in life? So I was a minister. So I converted at 14. Uh, I was in ministry by 18, and I was a full-time youth pastor by 20, and I was married by 20. So, you know, there was real no adulthood or young adulthood for me. You know, when I was in college, I went to college full-time at Azusa Pacific, and then I had probably 40, 50 hours of ministry every week. And I was married. And by the time I'm like 23, I'm finished two years of seminary. And I'm just not even sure I believe in God anymore. And yet I'm in charge of like 200 kids at this youth group. I'm on pastoral staff at a mega church, the whole thing. 
So Oxford was a way out. You know, it, yeah. it was a really soft landing. I could tell people at church, yeah, I'm going to be a theologian and teach at like a seminary someday. And they would have right. rather me like become a, a, a pastor who planted a new church or a missionary. But all right, you know, that's that's an acceptable answer. You're going to be a professor, a theologian. OK, fine. And I get there. And for the first time in my life, I'm I'm away from home. I'm 6,000 miles away from home, totally extracted from this community that I had given everything to for the last 10 or 11 years. You know, when I would go to the grocery store at home, I'd see 10 people I knew. When we got married and I was 20 years old, a thousand people came to our wedding because- Wait, hold up. Did you say a thousand people (laughs) came to your wedding and you were 20? So we didn't, you know, pay for all of them to eat dinner. But when we had the ceremony at the church, all of the youth group kids came, all of their parents came, all of their little brothers and sisters came. Because we were the example of like what you wanted your kid to do, like become this Jesus freak who marries at a young age and serves the Lord. Like we were the golden children of the next generation. Wow. And so all of a sudden, instead of being saturated by that kind of ethos, I'm in England, 6,000 miles away from home. No one's watching me. And very soon, my then wife and I are like, hey, should we get divorced? Because... (laughs) um, (laughs) We oh have, goodness. we've been together since we were 14 and we're now like 23, 24. We're very different and we didn't mm-hmm. hate each other. Nobody was like throwing someone's clothes out the window saying, get out. It was just like, yeah, I think, I kind of think you want to do this with your life and you want to do that. So I got divorced and I really thought, okay, I got divorced, but I'm going to go like to all these different churches because I want to find the Christianity that's for me. The Methodists and the and social justice or like the the Anglicans and the liturgy smells and bells. Let's get some incense in these nostrils. Um, right. And none of it really worked. And so all of a sudden, six months after being this guy in my hometown who was the golden child of the next generation, I'm not going to church. I'm divorced, and I'm like drinking beer at a pub. And it's like, what happened to me? And so in some sense, it was the feeling of the greatest freedom. And in other sense, it was the greatest anguish. I feel like I had lost everything that I had built and worked toward, but I also felt like for the first time I was liberated to do and think and read and explore whatever I wanted. And it really kind of set me on the path I'm on today. So what did that look like for you? You know, um, as an evangelical, like I imagine we, we both had some similar practices. Like I used to read my Bible every day and pray all the time. When you didn't have that anymore, or, you know, did you stop reading the Bible and praying? Or what did you, what did it look like for you during that time in terms of your, you know, your practices and like your daily life? So Oxford was this soft landing in every sense of the word, because Oxford has like 45 colleges. And I went to the only one that is a Baptist college and Baptist in the UK. Which one is that? uh, Regents Park College, which is very small. It's and it it shares a wall with the Eagle and Child Pub, which is where like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to hang out. So that's oh, where we. Yes. Oh, that's so oh cool. yes! Oh yes, they did. Wow. So so we would hang. That's where we used to go get a beer, like you know, a um, couple nights a week. And so it was a soft landing in every sense in the word because all the other graduate students that I knew were like doing a PhD on Kierkegaard or doing a PhD on uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer or liberation theology. And so I still felt like I was in this kind of Christian cosmos, even though, as you're saying, Paul, I was not having quiet time. I was not doing my daily devotional. 
Uh, some days I went to church, like some Sundays I'd maybe go to church. I, I dated like this woman who was becoming a Baptist minister. She was like in training. So dating her meant sometimes she would convince me to go to church on a Sunday. But for the most part, um, I, I was deconstructing in a place that was still quote unquote Christian. Furthermore, the people that I were meeting were different than those at home. Like I was meeting gay Christian theologians and thinking, these folks are great and they're teaching me so much mm -hmm. and they're like so caring and they welcome me with open arms and they want to like help me get through a really tough time in my life. Uh, I'm meeting folks right from who are mainline Christians that don't believe the Bible is the literal word of God, but they're like awesome. And they're actually way cooler than the people from my old church. So in that sense, I really felt like I was able to transition uh, gradually, even though I wasn't in church. I wasn't sort of doing all of those quote unquote evangelical things that I used to on a daily basis. I want to ask you about another part of your identity, if uh, you're comfortable going into it. Um, you know, in, in your book, Preparing for War, you write some about your Japanese-American identity. Um, and you, you say something along the lines of, within the white evangelical church, it was okay for you to be a person of color, just one who didn't disrupt the church's mission by giving too much attention to racial identity or racial issues. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the limitations of racial identity within white evangelicalism and how your own identity developed after you deconstructed? Yeah, so I, you know, my church was 85, 90% white, and there were Asian Americans there, there were Latinx folks there, but for the most part, it, you know, it, it was an overwhelmingly white place. Now, it wasn't that they were suspicious. It was no, there was no one who ever said, you know, aren't you, isn't your dad Japanese? You know, what are you doing here? It was more like this. We want all the people of color we can find. Please come in. It proves we're not <laughs> racist. It's great that you're here. We feel so good about ourselves. Yay, a black person. Look at that, a Chinese person. Yay. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there was no sense of being a person of color there. And what, what I mean by that is, uh, you could be there. You just didn't need to speak up about your heritage, your history, your food, your clothes, about your rituals, about your family's sense of, uh, you know, passing time through various uh, ceremonies like a quinceanera or, uh, you know, something else. And so it took me a long time after I left to understand that, yes, being a person of color was okay. It just wasn't something if you ever tried to celebrate was going to be accepted. Like if we had a potluck, we were definitely going to be eating those turkey sandwiches uh, with, you know, potato salad. There was no, you know, there was no me being like, well, I brought some kimchi, everyone. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, feel free to share because, you know, it would have been like, what is this food? It smells weird. This is strange. We don't eat that here. And so I guess my point is like being a person of color was allowed as long as you didn't make an issue out of being a person of color. And I had to understand after I left, just the various forms of internalized racism that I had accepted. And, you know, one of the examples I give is on Christmas Eve, as with many megachurches, we had like five or six services. And as a pastor, past part of the pastoral staff, 
I had to be at every one of them. So you show up at church on Christmas Eve at, you know, 2 p.m. and you leave at 10 p.m. kind of thing. And Christmas Eve was the celebration day of my Japanese-American family in, in L.A. Usually that's when we'd go to L.A. and there'd be like 50 Japanese-American folks, along with like my family's from Hawaii, Hawaiians and Chinese and everybody we could find. And there was a feast like you could never imagine, you know, saimin and sashimi and tempura alongside ham and turkey and Okay, I'm starting to get hungry, Brad. Like it's <laughs> it's on it's honestly the best day of the year. It like I've brought <laughs> Sounds I've, like it. Yeah. Like I have brought friends and family like like you know like people from my wife's family and stuff to it and people can't believe what we eat in terms of how amazing it is. Now here's my point is I'm on pastoral staff and over the years, I gradually start to think of that night as other, as weird, as like, I don't need to go to that. You know, I'm, I'm getting phone calls from my dad and others like, mm-hmm. hey, are you going to stop by your aunt's house because we're all here? And I'm like, no, I'm not because I'm I'm with my family, right? I'm with my church family. I'm with the people who I've decided are going to be the most important to me. And to this day, 15 years later, that hurts. It haunts me that I missed out on those years with grandma and cousins and even like just aunts and uncles and the whole extended like ohana that we have because i was like helping out with another christmas eve service at this place that saw my japanese american family and their food and their ways of life is weird and other and really not necessary for me and you know that hurts yeah it sounds like or i mean obviously components big components of erasure um that I've experienced as well in different ways. Um, but that's, that's really hard to hear. Um, but I'm not surprised. I think that the white or well, the white evangelical homeschooling community that I grew up in, I, I come from a, a, a multi-ethnic home where my mother is a brown Mexican and my sister is uh, a woman of color who is adopted. But growing up, I just thought everyone in our family is white. We're just, I, I didn't even think about anything outside of white culture. Um, and I feel like in a lot of Christian spaces, it's like, yes, people of color, you're welcome in as long as you think and act like white people and adopt our cultural practices. Is is that similar, somewhat how it felt for you? Completely. I, you know, I think that when I look back, all of my mentors were white. All of the the men in my life who taught me how to be a godly Christian were white. Um, all I keep coming back to food because, you know, for a lot of uh, you know minoritized folks in the in this country, food is a place that you really keep your sense of story alive and memory alive. Yes. And so our sense of food was totally engrossed by just like. Like I said, turkey sandwiches and potato salad rather than the rich and textured and layered array of Hawaiian and Japanese and American food that I ate with my with my Japanese American family. Um, you know, we have this beautiful American story that traverses from Japan to Maui to California. Uh, it's filled with a lot of twists and turns. It's filled with a lot of different forms of family and care. It's filled with tragedy, but also just utter uh, <laughs> the most profound forms of human love I can imagine. And so I guess for me, looking back on those years when I saw it as something that wasn't essential to me, it makes me wonder, like, how, how could I have ever been convinced to think in that manner? How could I have ever thought that I should transform into someone who doesn't celebrate 
that story, that chain of memory. Uh, so it, yeah, that it, it, it really is, as you said, Paul, a matter of you need to think this way, you need to act this way, you need to speak this way, you need to remember this way, right? We're not going to mm. talk about Japanese wow. internment here. We're not going to talk about the fact that the U.S.-Mexico border has shifted how many times over the last century and a half. We're not going to talk about, right, Chinese exclusion or uh, Jim Crow because we're just not. So don't. And, and I think those are the kinds of things you don't notice until you're away and you have time to confront them. Right. Um, I want to dive into this a little bit more. And we're talking a lot about race and identity. And, you know, in the last several years, I've been doing a lot of reading on anti and specifically anti-black racism in Christianity and the church. And in your book, you, you go into that as well. And in fact, you have a line in there that says racism, not and specifically, I think, anti-black racism, um, not abortion was the central factor that motivated white evangelical Christians to get involved in American politics in the 20th century. Now, this is not the narrative that the white evangelical church teaches us. I never learned about this in homeschooling, in my Christian college. Um why are they hiding this history from us? So I want to be really clear on this point, that there are many folks out there who grew up in a, in a situation, sounds like you did, Paul, where you are told, hey, abortion is murder, and therefore we need to make sure that we vote and activate and rally against abortion. So everyone listening, I don't want them to think that I'm discounting those experiences. There are surely millions and tens of millions of Americans who have been told their lives, you need to be politically active so we can protect the unborn. So don't get me wrong. I am not saying that abortion is not a primary rallying issue for evangelicals. Here's what I am saying. What I am saying is, if you look at the history of the 1950s and 60s, you had a lot of white Christians who did not want their kids going to school with black children in the South. 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, all the schools need to be integrated. So what they do is they create schools that are attached to churches, and these schools are for white kids only. Uh, you have so many white kids in the South going to private Christian schools that the public school system in Virginia actually shuts down for a while. If you look in Mississippi, there are school districts that have like no white kids left enrolled, even though uh, the public school system is open and functioning. And so the IRS and the federal government start to take notice and they start telling these churches, uh, specifically they start with, I don't know, Bob Jones University, but then this trickles down to churches and, and their schools. Hey, Bob Jones University, hey, uh, other segregation academies, if you're going to have a policy of segregation, you are not going to be tax exempt. Now, what that leads to is not repentance. It does not lead to uh looking in the mirror and thinking, wow, we have gotten this completely wrong. We need to get rid of segregation. It leads to a cry that says, you are attacking God, you're attacking good Bible-believing Christians, and you're attacking family values. So if when people ask me about the origins of family values in Christian spaces, I point them to segregation and desegregation. And I say, this motivated so many folks that you are familiar with that might be names you recognize, like Jerry Falwell or Tim LaHaye, or Pat Robertson. It motivated them 
to start to rally their people to the polls, to vote, to register to vote, to back political candidates, to give to political campaigns. Now, don't get me wrong. Abortion is there. It comes in as a major force and it eventually overtakes the segregation issue. So I am not denying that and I don't want to discount it and I don't want anyone to to hear me and think that I'm somehow erasing that part of the story. But I always want a chance to say that the racism, the anti-black racism is baked into evangelical politics of the 20th century and there's no way to overlook it or to pretend it's not there. And I'm so glad you do, Brad, because when I when I was first reading um, what you've written and what some others have written, I, I did have a resistance to it. I, I was like, that's not that's not what they taught me. You know, I was rallying steps from, you know, on the steps for uh, a steps of the Capitol for against abortion. And that was our big rallying cry. I think what you may be pointing out here is that there was a generational shift that occurred. And so. It may be, you know, I'm almost 40. It may be my parents' generation. What really rallied that generation of white evangelical Christians was this anti-black racism, was this idea that Christianity or that Christian beliefs and practices are supreme over civil rights laws for black folks. And then after they lost that in the courts and in the culture, they essentially had to quickly abandon that and and find something new and and that's where they clung on to a, abortion is that is that backed up by the by the research th- that you did for your book yeah i think that's a really great way to put it is that the generational shift is important and i think that you get to a point let's just say the early 1970s let's call it 1970 1971 right about when roe is is going to get decided you reach a point in the country after the Civil Rights Act has been passed, after the Voting Rights Act has been passed, after the, after the Civil Rights Movement has happened and, and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X have been assassinated, that to call for just out-and-out racism in the country starts to be something that is just not going to get you on the main stage in many parts of the United States. And so as you say, Paul, there becomes a kind of shift or pivot in rhetorical strategy. All right. We're going to stick with this family values idea, but we're going to shift it to this abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, homosexuality and the representation of queer people in mainstream America. All of those things will rush to the front. And in fact, they're going to be really uh, just a message we can use not only in the South or Southern California, but that we can use everywhere. Right. You can use the Equal Rights Amendment. You can use the issue of, of gay couples. Uh, families with two dads or two moms, you can use these issues in Georgia, in Massachusetts, in Oregon, in Kansas. So the shift happens and all of a sudden you get a generation like you're saying, Paul, where you're like, no, I, I never, nobody ever told me the reason we're out here at the Capitol is because we don't want to go to school with black kids. It's, I was told it's because we need to save the unborn babies. And that's totally, totally true. I, I don't want to discount that. I just don't want us to ever forget that first wave of evangelical political activism uh, that happens in the 60s that really is in many ways based around race and a militant white identity. And as I point out, it's not limited to the South. It's it's happening where I grew up in Southern California as well. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, I'm an attorney, and so uh, the Bob Jones University case, uh, the the case against the IRS, is you know is is front and center in the work that I do with respect to civil rights. And we talk a lot about the Bob Jones University case on this podcast, uh, the case from 1983. And it's just occurring to me in the course of our discussion now, you know, that case was 1983. So culturally, the white conservatives had already lost the battle when it came to explicit, I'll just call it explicit forms of um, anti-black racism. Already lost. Very few Christian seminaries, schools, colleges were not admitting black students at this point, or were, and, and most were allowing interracial dating and interracial marriage, but not Bob Jones and not a few others. The thing that I found very notable and I want to ask you about is we're again talking about the 1980s. The National Association of Evangelicals filed a brief at the Supreme Court And they basically said in their brief, our churches do not believe in anti-black racism anymore. And we apologize for it. We even think it's bad. But we are going to fight for Bob Jones University's right, their legal right to practice anti-black racist policies on the basis of their sincerely held religious beliefs. Because if we don't, then The federal government is going to come for us next with respect to women, with respect to gay people, with respect to trans folks. And so they sided not on the side of equality, but on the side of Christian supremacy. Why do you think they did that and risked their, you know, risk tarnishing their reputation for decades? This is such a great question, and it's such a great historical inflection point. So if we think of 1983, we think of we're right in the middle of Ronald Reagan's first term. And yes, the ability to use the N-word on television or in quote-unquote polite company has evaporated in many parts of the country, certainly not all. And yet what happened? Reagan and his political allies and many of the evangelicals that he inspired realized that you could use other words. You could use words like welfare queen. You could use words like urban blight. And you those were ways to explain. To, to say things about people of color, specifically black people, without saying the words that had now been prohibited from uh, much of uh, the American media landscape. So we're there. That's where we are in time, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're there. Now, the, the National Association of Evangelicals comes out and says something that is just so telling, and I think that this statement is just just a wonderful example of how things never change. We are not racist. We want to be fully uh, fully affirming of all people coming to our churches. However, we think that the federal government trying to prevent systemic racism in our schools, in our colleges, in our universities, in places that receive federal funds or places and institutions that are exempt from paying taxes, which in essence is a, is a, a, a kind of way of Uh, of reverse paying or reverse payment, we think that the government and its attempts to regulate is more menacing than racism. And what's next? Are they going to try to, I don't know, make a more equal and fair set of institutions in public square by discussing gender or sexuality next time? We can't stand for that. So let's just pause for a moment. 
we are fully affirming we want to integrate all the all the people of color come on into church it's great yay but the more the more sinister and menacing threat is governments trying to create more equal and just societies and we will just not stand for that so we support bob jones and you said something paul that's so important bob jones sincerely held religious belief if you sincerely hold a religious belief that is somehow justification for the worst forms of discrimination and that is of course still going today we sincerely believe that gay marriage is wrong so sorry we can't make you a cake we can't make you a website you know i'm sorry but that hairstyle that's a gay haircut so i can't give you that haircut so <laughs> i've been guilty of one or it's two a, of those it's a straight it's a straights only barbershop or salon Paul's because haircut is pretty gay well and there it is you know and 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 I, you know it's it's absurd but if you think about what people are saying about expression and sincerely held religious belief you can imagine scenarios where we are in a landscape where that will become uh you know quite readily uh, well, quite normal in some parts of the country. And it harkens back to exactly that brief that you talked about, Paul, uh, the sincerely held religious belief. And what's next? We can't let the government try to, I don't know, make sure that things are equal and fair and inclusive for all people. So we stand with Bob Jones, a segregationist. That's where we are. That's where we're going to put our money. Brad, talking about this idea of beliefs, um, I think is really important because it conjures up a couple of things for me. And this might seem like such an easy question or a rhetorical question, but why is it important that people question their beliefs um, or the things that they have been taught about Christianity or even whiteness in America? Is And is that questioning sort of the beginning parts of how we see change unravel the way we want to. I think reflecting on our, our deeply held beliefs is important for us as individuals and as communities. And there's this really delicate balance that we have as human beings, because when we are part of an interconnected set of individuals that has shared stories and rituals and symbols. As human beings, we often feel very fulfilled. We feel very safe. We feel like our life has a purpose, that it stretches back before us to generations that were here uh, long ago, and it stretches ahead into the generations that will come after us. And so our life, both spatially and temporally, has a sense of significance. And that is something that I know a lot of us miss and want. Mm -hmm. However, I think that when we talk about Religious communities like the evangelical spaces I came out of and, and many others, including the both of you, we're talking about uh, communities that are saturating. They're all-encompassing, such that if you ever reflect on the strands that connect you to the, the church, the institution, to the un other individuals, it's not seen as saying, hey, why don't we check the knots? Why don't we check the the integrity of the rope and the strands that are holding us together? Why don't we see if we might need to reconfigure some of these? Why don't we see if we can't reflect on the past and find richer resources or richer ideals of who we might be so that we might renovate the strands that hold us together as humans and that we might then 
pass on a robust and vibrant infrastructure to our, our children and their children and their children after them. In these communities, that kind of reflection is seen as you are probably the one that needs to exit the network. You are the one who is causing trouble. You're the one who might cause this whole thing to unravel if you don't stop it. And so why is it important for people to ask questions? Why is it important for people to reflect on their deepest uh, held beliefs, the stories that, that make up the significance of their lives? Because to me, by questioning your tradition, you renovate the tradition. Tradition is always a battle. It's always a de debate. And if you're in a community that sees tradition not as a debate, authority not as two-way, then you are in a, a community that is toxic and abusive. You're in a place that is unsafe, either for you or for anyone else who questions or doesn't fit the mold. So the kinds of questioning we're talking about when it comes to race, sex, gender, when it comes to history and all of its sweeping tragedy is the kind of questioning that totalitarian communities don't want you to do. Otherwise, you will find yourself on the way out of them. Now, it just so happens that in the United States, white Christianity and specifically white Protestantism and, and more specifically white evangelicalism has been the dominant religious force that has gone hand in hand with so much of American power and American authority, uh, especially over the last century. So when you question the church, it is almost as if you're questioning the entirety of your nation's past. And that gets so threatening so quick. And you see it in the reactions to Christian nationalism. You see it when people write books like Jesus and John Wayne, and all of a sudden the most, the most minor reflections on, on gender roles turns into a revolution. You see it when people start talking about how we might need to, to rethink our approach to race uh, and systemic racism. And it becomes one of those things that is about wokeness and tearing down the gospel of Christ and blah, blah, blah. You, you start to understand that it, when we talk about this particular community, we're talking about one that is not just a church trying to hold together a network of beliefs and traditions. It's a church that has been imbued with a sense of American nationalism. And so questioning one means perhaps questioning the other. And that is way, way, way too much for most of the people involved. I can tell that you have religious education. You, I, I mean, you just preached. <laughs> you just preached right now in a very, very amazing way. So I, I really appreciate that's everything you that, had to say about that. That's why I pod, I, That's why I podcast. I'm not a pastor anymore. Sorry, <laughs> this is yeah. No, and, and same, same with me. But I really podcast preacher. Podcast preacher. Um, I appreciate that part that you said about the renovation. Um, I've never heard it articulated quite that way. And I really like that. Well, I, I think I think tradition is often seen as an unbending set of rules that you inherit. And in reality, tradition is meant to be a dialogue and a debate with the elders that have gone before you. And in fact, it's supposed to be seen as uh, a living debate. I mean, it's not just your debate with them, but it's the debates they were carrying on with each other, mm. trying to come to a sense of how we should live. So I can do that as a Japanese American. I mean, the 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 debates in Japanese America when World War II happened, and should should Japanese American men serve in the military while their families are incarcerated? Those debates raged then; they rage now 
Does that mean that the tradition is one or the other? No, it means that we continue to have those debates and we continue to try to figure out what's best for us and our community. That's how most religious traditions work. But evangelicalism is one that says, no, 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 no. <laughs> we have an unchanging, unerring Bible that has always taught this. And if you question that, here's the door. If you're willing to get on board, go ahead and stay stay in the pew. We're happy to take your money and your devotion and your votes. It's one or the other. You decide. And that's where it's so important for people to question. Thank God for that door. Um, because that's what, I mean, walking out that door is what changed my life in so many in so many ways that are like pretty unbelievable but I think all three of us have had that experience where we've we've exited you know for the better Brad, I know you're not a political strategist, but I want to ask you a question a little bit in that vein, and and it's this. So right now, there's kind of a, a, a fight within our culture, and on the progressive side, there's a desire to maintain America as a pluralistic society, where there's religious and political pluralism. Um, against some of these um, autocratic tendencies. And I'm wondering where the ideology of white Christian nationalism, whether it should be invited in to that pluralism or whether it should be shown the door. And I want to just illustrate um, using the Respect for Marriage Act that was passed and signed and I'm I'm in a same-sex marriage, and I believe in uh, marriage equality. But that Respect for Marriage Act that was signed, the white Christian conservatives got some language put in there. And that language was something along the lines of this. That even though the country now, you know, has same-sex marriage throughout the land, and that people who hold traditional views of sexuality, that their views and their beliefs are good and honorable. And that language is really powerful because it admits them in to polite society. It admits them in to what is socially and legally acceptable in our culture in a way that people who oppose interracial marriage, they are not invited in. Their beliefs are not good and honorable. But beliefs about traditional marriage when it comes to sexuality or gender are. Where, how do you think our society should treat white Christian nationalism? Should we put it on a level playing field with other ideologies or does it need to be shown the door? So white Christian nationalism in its most bare form is the idea that Christians should be privileged in the United States in some way. So that could mean that you'll only vote for a Christian. I mean, there, we have about 9% of the, the United States, according to social science data, that thinks only Christians should be citizens. 
we have about 14% that thinks that the church, whatever that means, should have a veto over uh, um, laws passed in Congress or decisions from the Supreme Court. Those are really extreme examples, but we have others uh, that basically are Christians should be privileged somehow, that you have to swear in on the Bible if you're elected to uh, Congress or to be mayor, that uh, you know Christians um, should be recognized as the founders of the country. Uh, if I say, why do we have in God we trust on the, uh, on the money? I don't believe in God. Many people don't believe in God. Folks will say, well, we're a Christian nation. Deal with it. Okay, so here's my point. Christian nationalism, by its definition, thinks it comes to the it comes to the table you're talking about, Paul. Right? Folks are sitting around a table, okay? And Christian nationalism shows up, and its opening statement is, "We should be privileged somehow." It could mm. be in the most extreme way. It could be in a benign way. Okay. And so this is why when people say, "How is Christian nationalism anti-democratic?" It is because of this. We cannot have a real democracy that is inclusive and free for everyone. If one group shows up and says, we should be privileged. I mean, if I showed up and at the table of this like stunning diversity of the American fabric, and I said, I think Japanese Americans should be privileged. I just, I don't know. I mean, y'all heard of Toyota? It's a good company. I mean, I don't know, friends. Okay. Uh, who here likes sushi? Okay. That's what I thought. All right. Thank you very much. Japanese America it is. We appreciate it. All right. I mean, you know, that would just, it would be laughed off. It would be absurd. It would be all kinds of things. That is what the white Christian often wants to tell you. So my response to your question is we cannot have white Christian nationalism and have democracy. It's the, the two are not things that can coexist. Now, does that mean we can't have Christianity and democracy? By no means. There are many Christians, and we say this all the time in writing and on, on, on our podcast, there are many Christians who recognize that Christian privilege is not part of democracy, and they don't want Christian privilege. They're happy to exist in a society where all people, religious or not, regardless of ethnic or racial identity, regardless of gender or sexual identity, are welcomed, included, and everyone is playing in the same uh, uh, level playing field. Christian nationalism, by its very definition, tells you from the start, I don't want that. And so how can we have anything like the democracy we want, a more perfect union, if one group shows up to the table and their first opening statement is not, hi, I'm so-and-so from this part of the country, but hi, I'm so-and-so, and I clearly should be privileged at this table above everyone else, so I'm not going to participate unless you all agree on that doesn't make any sense. Very well put. Thank Very you, Brad, well for walking us through that. Yeah, that was great. Um, so we're going to, we're at the tail end here. I'm going to ask the Gen Z question from Chloe uh, for you, Brad, and then we'll wrap up. But this is Chloe's question. You know what it's like to be a young person wrapped up in this world of white Christian nationalism. How do you feel this movement uses young people to further its agenda? And how do you think the young people who are resisting these ideas and fighting back against these structures they were raised in fit within this ongoing battle with Christian nationalism in our country? Great question. Absolutely great question. So first, how does this movement use young people? I'll, I'll use my own experience to illustrate a point that I think is really important. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really somebody who's driven by 
what he thinks. And once I get in my head that something is right or wrong, it's really hard for you to get in my way. I'm not going <laughs> to, you can ask loved ones and my poor spouse. Um, you know, if I think <laughs> something is right or someone has done wrong, it, there's really little room for me to kind of uh, bend on that. And so when I was convinced as a 14, 15 year old, Jesus is savior. If you accept him, he will forgive you. You will have eternal life. You will be promised uh, an eternity of joy. And you can tell others, and all they have to do is accept that too. And they can they can have that gift alongside you. Once that logic clicked in my brain, it was an either or logic. And so in my head, it was like, I should spend every waking moment trying to get everyone around me to heaven. My dad, my mom all these kids at my school, whoever I meet on the boardwalk at the beach or outside the movie theater. Now, I was a very atypical case. I mean, a weird little dude out there carrying his Bible and just, you know, going for it as an evangelist. But the way I thought is pretty typical of adolescent thinking. Have you ever met a 15, 14, 13-year-old who's like comes home and says, I learned this and now I'm going to live this way and I won't accept any compromise. It could be, I'm going to be vegan and no shade to vegans. I'm just saying like, you know, when we are young, we, we learn something about the world and we're like, mom and dad, mom, dad, 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 mom, mom, parent, whoever you are, I need to change my way of living because I learned this thing and I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to listen to how we are going to compromise or we'll do it halfway. No way. Okay. Adolescents think that way. It's part of development. It's how your brain goes. So when you think that way and a movement comes along that exists according to either or logic, it's ripe for recruiting you into it. And so there's no, there's no doubt that evangelists have always thought of the young people as the key. I mean, how many times did we hear that growing up at rallies and at church and at Bible study? Young people are the key, right? And the, here's the bet. If we get you at 13 to be, believe it's either or, maybe we can hold on to you for life, right? So young people are a strategy. Young people are prey. Young people are a target because when you get to be older, you get to be 28, it's harder to convince you. It's harder to say it's this or that. You've been through the ringer. You've seen what it looks like in the real world and your willingness to kind of reduce things to us and them, this or that. Don't get me wrong. Humans do it. And we've seen it time and time again over the last however many years, but it's a lot harder than with that 14 year old who you took to summer camp and is a hundred miles from home and is up there singing songs and being preached at three times a day. And all of a sudden they're like convinced that this is how the world works. Absolutely. So that, right, that is how they fit in now. How do young people combat it? What's the other side? I think we're seeing that. I think what we're seeing is if you look at electoral politics all over the country, that young people on college campuses waiting three hours, four hours to vote because they are upset about reproductive rights. They are changing the landscape of the country. If you look at Kansas, we had a referendum. 60% of Kansans voted against uh, making uh, abortion uh, uh, not happening there. That's young people. If you look at the Wisconsin Supreme Court from last spring, it's a Wisconsin Supreme Court. We're not talking about president. And yet we had kids lining up at college campuses to vote for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Why? Because reproductive rights were on the ballot. That is happening everywhere. It's also happening in conjunction with movements for uh, 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 migrants, for uh, for uh, uh, working against legislation targeting trans people. Um, for fighting for inclusivity, representation for people of, of all gender identities, all sexual identities. I have interviewed 
people on college campuses from Tennessee to Missouri to California who are all joining in diverse coalitions and saying, we are not going to stand for this vision of America. So Gen Z is drastically, overwhelmingly important to American democracy or the idea of it. And so uh, anyone who thinks that there's no hope, that there's no reason to try, I would say we're already seeing the, the results and change is possible and hope glimmers in the places you least expect it. So if you're Gen Z, you are the key to the future, which is the most trite, old man, cliche thing to say. It's like a bumper sticker from hell. Who needs that? But it's... <laughs> I would like a bumper sticker from hell. <laughs> it is absolutely true. It is absolutely 100% true. Well, and that's where we get our mo that's that's our greatest source of hope and joy as well is is with the young people that we work with, you know, queer students on conservative Christian college campuses. They have something to say and they are saying it loudly and proudly. And um, there is a lot of hope there. Well, Brad, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for joining On God's Campus. Um, everyone, please check out Brad's podcast, Straight White American Jesus. Get his book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. And Brad, where can people find you on the interwebs and socials? Yes, uh, at Bradley Onishi, uh, at Straight White JC. My website's bradonishi.com. And um, our website at the show is straightwhiteamericanjesus.com. So those are those are all good places. Thank you, Brad. I, I enjoy talking to you so much. Every single time I learn something um, that I have never known before. And I still had so many more questions I wanted to ask you. <laughs> but for another time, maybe a part two. Sounds good. Let me know. I'll be all there. All right. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Thanks so much. Brad. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground. I'm your narrator, Chloe, alongside co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick and Aaron Green. This podcast is a product of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and is produced by Crystal Cheatham from Our Bible App. Listen next time as On God's Campus examines the lessons history has to teach us about where predominantly white Christian educational institutions and the political machines backing them are taking the country now.